0: Hello everyone and welcome to this part 2 of the After the Final Whistle NBA Season Preview, this time looking at the Eastern Conference. I am your host Brad Clear. It is a windy night here in the Northeast. Part 2 here gave you the Western Conference Preview the other night. Tonight will be the East. And in addition to that, and I'm just going to start off right here, we're going to get into our award predictions for the season and also our overall uh, we'll go with championship finals predictions as well. And then, of course, following the same format as the West, we'll go 15-1 to 1 in the East with my predictions where each of the teams will fall in the standings. So for the awards real quick, my MVP prediction, Giannis with Luka and Lillard behind him. I could very well see it being Luka Doncic. Most improved player, I think it's going to be DeAndre Ayton. I we'll would also see Christian Wood Sheikh Milton and Darius Baisley being people in play there. R.J. Barrett as well. Defensive player of the year, I think it's going to be Rudy Gobert. I think Giannis, Bam Adebayo, and Joel Embiid will be in the mix there as well. Sixth man of the year, I'm going Karis Levert. I think especially seeing him the other night in that role, he is going to feast against other teams' second units. And then rookie of the year, I'm going to go with LaMelo Ball with James Wiseman and Obi Toppin in contention there as well. Overall championship prediction, I'm going to say the Lakers over the Nets to win the championship. Now, let's get into it. We're going to go Eastern Conference, seeds 15-1 to in my predictions for the season. We'll get into their offseason moves, analyze those, look at what they're going to bring as a team. And let's just start with the team who I think is going to come in 15th and in the last spot in the Eastern Conference. And that is the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cleveland Cavaliers actually, with a nice start to the season yesterday, looking specifically at Darius Garland and Colin Sexton, which is really going to be the key duo to this team, to its long-term outlook. Can they coexist? Can Garland improve in his second year? Can Colin Sexton continue to show what he did before the shutdown in March as far as being a high-level, efficient offensive player? Andre Drummond and Larry Nance both had a double-double last night. They won their first game of the season. They were up on Charlotte by as much as 20 at one point, over 20 at one point. So let's take a look at Cleveland and let's discuss really everything they did this offseason. Not necessarily the most eventful offseason, but I think that's fine. You know, I, I think specifically you got to start with their draft and looking at Isaac Okoro at the fifth overall pick. The Cavs, they've been a victim now two years in a row of some bad lottery luck. But Isaac Okoro, the fifth overall pick, we saw it in preseason, we saw it last night. He has all the making so far to be a very strong two-way player. Can bring it on the defensive side of the ball, can rebound, can pass a little bit offensively, can be an above-the-rim threat, Uh, it's good in transition. I think there's a lot to like with Isaac Okoro, been very, very solid, and looking at him Starting there at the three, you have that duo. Three guys, 21 or under, in Sexton, Garland, and Okoro. I really like Okoro, and I think he makes a lot of sense and would fit into more or less any team in the league as far as what he brings as a two-way wing. So I think that right there is a very positive sign. Again, you look at a team like Cleveland, they have the ability or had the ability to get in extra assets, taking on some salary. Mention it with the Lakers. They take on JaVale McGee. The Lakers need to get off of that, so they have the flexibility to give Marcus Saul two years. They take in JaVale McGee, get a 2024 Lakers second for their troubles, send out Jordan Bell, who the Lakers wave and stretch, very small hit per year, and Alfonso McKinney, who the Lakers keep. They sign Damian Dotson, two years, four million, with the second year being non-guaranteed. I like Dotson. I always have. Is he anything special? No. But I think if you look at him being a wing who can shoot, has some size at the 2-3 spot, and for that cheap of a cost, still very young, may as well. Brought back Matthew Della Vadova on a minimum, and then obviously Tristan Thompson signs the mid-level exception with the Celtics. John Henson, anti-Zijic, Brandon Knight, not brought back. So, looking at it holistically, I think you look at this Cleveland team, and I know their first game was a very positive sign, but I look overall at this team, and I think a few things. First, got to go to the Sexton and Garland duo. Darius Garland was drafted with the idea and the projection for many that you're looking at a Damian lillard light player. A guy who can take guys off the dribble, get to the rim at will, be able to hit threes at a very high rate. That's the thing that he really, I think, he needs to get that three-point shot to a very consistent level this season and be an overall big time playmaker as well. He struggled this first year. He did, but we saw last night he had twenty two six and six, and he looked great. Colin Sexton was out there. He scored twenty seven, and Colin Sexton, Colin Sexton, I, I've talked about him multiple times on this podcast. If the thing with Colin Sexton is this, what does he bring you on the defensive side of the ball? Not much. Can he bring enough in an effort sense to compensate for that? And as a smaller player, can he and Garland really truly be able to play at the same time on a team that is winning and playing with expectation? And overall, is Colin Sexton a guy who can be a winning player, can contribute at a high level to a winning team at the highest level in the playoffs? I don't know if he is, but I will say this. I He's an incredibly fun player to watch. And ever since his rookie season, where you could see the incredible offensive talent then, but inefficient taking a ton of mid-range shots looking at i guess what his offensive skill set is that wasn't he wasn't maximizing it with his shot selection and with the style of play that he was bringing we look at it now specifically looking at last night and then we'll get into last year as well three for four from three nine for 16 from the field 27 points five assists high level efficient scoring here from colin sexton Now, I said I wanted to get more into, from last season, his very strong shot selection, his highly efficient game. 38% from three. He was a guy who was very, very aggressive getting to the rim. He shot 42% in looking at close looks at the rim as far as floaters and getting to the rim for layups. And then we look at his overall shooting splits, 47% from the field, 38% from three, 84% from the line. And he's just progressively, since that rookie season, improved his offensive game, refined his offensive game. He's a high-level scorer. He scored, I remember watching in March, him scored 41 against Boston. He can have these big burst games where he just gives you an incredible offensive output. Now, of course, again, outside of that, there's not a ton with assists. He's only in the 6th percentile amongst guards for his assist rate. That's not good enough. You're going to get a volume scorer, a guy who is an efficient scorer, but you're not going to get a ton defensively. You're not going get to get a ton in a playmaking sense. But if this scoring ability keeps improving, this offensive all-around ability keeps improving year over year, we're looking at, what, a poor man's Gilbert Arenas type of player? I think looking at the rest of this Cavs team, where it's really interesting to look is this mix of bigs they have with Larry Nance, Kevin Love, Andre Drummond, JaVale McGee. I mentioned Nance earlier. Had the double-double last night. Andre Drummond had the double-double last night. Still not quite sure why they traded for Drummond, But Larry Nance is on a reasonable contract. The salaries are decreasing year over year. Not too much greater than what a mid-level exception type of player would be, which I think in a perfect sense he'd be your mid-level exception type of guy coming off the bench. Drum in on that huge expiring. Is that a guy you're really going to commit to long-term and give big money to as you build out this roster? Can JaVale McGee play as a high-level backup relatively similar to what he did with the Lakers, and can you turn him into another second-round pick? So I think there's, and then Kevin Love, obviously, I think the contract there is too much to really be able to get value for him, and obviously you have to look at he's a guy who really can't play the five, and injury concerns are very, very strong there. So what I'm interested in is, is there a way for them to get value back for any of these bigs? Who do they prioritize as far as how they're building out this roster long-term? And really, is JaVale McGee going to be able to play enough at a decent level to be able to get them another second as they got to take him on? Looking past that, it's it's unfortunate after the injury he suffered last year, didn't really play, suffered an injury already. Dylan Windler, I was excited to kind of see him in there as a guy who could be a high-level three-point shooter off the bench. He's already hurt, was out for basically all of last season, as I mentioned. You still have Dante Exum in there, and then Matthew Dellavedova. I, I didn't really see the need to resign or to bring back Dellavedova, especially considering those young guards I mentioned earlier. Considering Exum, considering Kevin Porter Jr., who I'll get into in a second. Chetty Osman, I like Chetty Osman. I, I think I was probably a bit too high on him in the past. I think his contract's a bit optimistic. I think he's a nice bench player, but I think he is what he is at this point. I mentioned Damian Dotson. I think again a low cost flyer a guy who I've always thought has been a really interesting lower part of the bench, big wing, who can shoot at the two or the three, can't hurt. And then Kevin Porter Jr. Kevin Porter Jr., who they traded, I believe, was four second round picks to get into the very back of the first round and get him again from that mold of a high-level offensive outburst type uh, guard. Can play on the ball and handle it as your point guard. Can play off the ball at the two. I'm really intrigued, again, to see if there's value to be had in playing those three-guard lineups with Porter, Sexton, and Garland. But as a whole, I look at this Cavs team and I see this. Is there one player that you look at on this team and look at where they're at and how they're building out this team and say, this player is 100%, no doubt, a foundational player for the Cavs' long-term roster building and outlook? I don't think you can say that quite yet at this point. Colin Sexton is a fantastic offensive player. Can he be a winning player? I don't know. Darius Garland, he struggled as a rookie, played great last night. Can he take a leap and be what many projected him to be in the second year? To be determined. But I think if nothing else, Isaac Okoro looks very, very solid. I would expect they should be able to trade one of those bigs that I just mentioned. And you're going to see, like last night, they're going to be able to compete in some games. When Sexton is on, if Garland can play like he did last night, you're going to have Kevin Porter coming back. You have guys who are capable on a night-to-night basis of very strong offensive outbursts, we'll call them. And then Drummond, rebounding monster. Larry Nance, rebounding monster. Kevin Love, rebounding monster. Night-to-night, they're going to have the ability to steal some games. But as a whole, the, the roster is not quite that quite cohesive, and I think there are a lot of questions. And I think defensively, especially on the perimeter, they're going to struggle in a lot of games. So I have them at 15 here in the East, and more so than what they're going to be this season, I think it's still the same thing for Kobe Altman in Cleveland, is who are the foundational guys here, and how do you build out this roster long term? I think there's a lot of options here, and I think that this year, really, you need to see improvement from Garland, and you need to see what you can get for these bigs, and if any of these bigs, specifically looking at Andre Drummond with and how expensive he will be, is he someone worth committing money to long term? At this point, I would say he's not, but he may. that may be a decision of theirs that they make. But as a whole, very intrigued to see what these young guys can show with Cleveland specifically. Sexton, Porter, Garland, and Akoro. Hopefully, Windler can play a decent amount of minutes on a night night basis and stay healthy because I'd like to see him come off the bench and be a sharpshooter for them. So, an intriguing team, but not a good team. I think I have them at 15th here in the East. Now let's go to the team who I projected at 14th in the East one of the most interesting off-seasons in the entire league, and that is the Detroit Pistons. So the Detroit Pistons, under new general manager Troy Weaver, formerly of the Oklahoma City Thunder, they were very, very active this off-season. They came in to this off-season. Very clearly you could see that this team was primed to really not necessarily process or tear down to the studs, but this was a team very, very obviously that was going to bottom out and had no other choice in their best interest but to bottom out. They were going to come in with a lot of cap space, the ability to take on money with assets attached to it, have a very high draft pick with a very interesting mix of players available to them at that spot, have veteran players with value that they could offload. And so let's just get into, I guess, the sort of chronological order of events here for how this offseason developed for the Pistons. So... The first thing here is Christian Wood. Christian Wood, for whatever reason, did not re-sign with the Detroit Pistons. Now, of course, we don't know if that was something where the Pistons didn't want to, or if Wood was set on going elsewhere. We don't know, so we can't speculate on that. However, if if he was willing to re-sign with the Pistons, considering the moves they made, considering how good he looks and has been, how good I think he's going to continue to be, that's a miss on the Detroit Pistons part. But again, we don't know that specifically. So let's get into the chain of events here. First deal they made, they traded Bruce Brown to Brooklyn for Zanin Musa and Toronto's second-round pick in 2021. Now, Zanin Musa makes more, or made more, than Bruce Brown. So that took away a little bit of space there. Bruce Brown's good. Nice defender, can handle the ball. Very useful bench player, I think, and very, very cheap. And the second-round pick they're getting there, Toronto's second in 2021, it's... Not likely that that pick is going to yield you a ton of value. Effectively, you're saying, "All right, we want to turn the roster over a little bit here. Let's get something for Bruce Brown." Not only did Don and Musa take up a little bit more space, but Don and Musa, they ended up having him be their last roster cut to get the roster down to 15. So effectively, Bruce Brown for Toronto second in 2021. I'm not crazy about that one. Then we look at they. Effectively, Trevor Reza, who obviously, as we know, he went from Portland to Houston to Detroit to OKC. They took on Trevor Ariza and with it got the 16th pick because, remember, Robert Covington was traded from Houston to Portland for the 16th pick this year and the 2021 first from Portland, obviously coming next year with protections on it. So, OK, on the surface, that makes sense. You're taking in Trevor Ariza's $12.8 million expiring. And for your troubles, you're getting the 16th pick in the draft. Great. Great use of your space. But it turns out that Detroit, to get that 16th pick and Ariza in, gives up a first-round pick to Houston that is top 16 protected in 2021 and 2022, top 18 protected in 2023, top 13 protected in 2024, Top nine protected 2025, 2026, 2027, and conveys as a second in 2027 if it never is able to transfer based on those protections. So if this Detroit Pristons retool, rebuild, whatever you want to call it, if it works out in a timely-ish fashion, you look at about, what, 2023, 2024, they're a team that's in the playoffs and can make some noise you're going to be giving up a first-round pick in a couple years to have had the ability to get this 16th pick and to take on Trevor Ariza. So that lessens the value of taking on that expiring Ariza and using your space to get assets because the way those protections are set up, you're probably giving up a first-round pick in a couple years. And then the deal gets expanded to where, based on a sign-in trade, you're trading Christian Wood to Houston because Houston would not have had the ability to outright sign Christian Wood at $13 million a year because the mid-level exception obviously is less than that. So you sign and trade out Christian Wood, take on a reason that 16th pick, and you trade out a first that you're probably going to give up based on the protections. And then you select Isaiah Stewart with the 16th pick. And look, I like Isaiah Stewart. has a high motor, strong on both ends, a lot of great uh, reviews and projections from a lot of people. But again, it's a bit it's a it's a center. That was the theme of their offseason, and he's a bit undersized as well. And then we see last night in the first game, he didn't play. And neither did Sadiq Bey. So the the overall value of that trade could have been more. We'll just put it that way. Then the deal where they bring in Delon Wright. Delon Wright, I thought that was a great move. They're able to bring in DeLon Wright in that deal where Ariza goes to Oklahoma City and James Johnson goes to Dallas and Justin Jackson goes to Oklahoma City and DeLon Wright goes from Dallas to Detroit. I like DeLon Wright a lot. Handle the ball, play as your one, play off the ball to the two, play at the three, can guard three positions, can pass, can playmate, can score. He's a very under unheralded player. I really like DeLon Wright. I think he's a very, very high-level backup. And I think he's going to, I mean, as we saw, he's a starting two-guard on this team. I'm a huge fan of DeLon Wright. So then we go back to the draft where at the time it was reported, okay, Luke Kennard, they trade him to the Clippers for the 19th pick as part of a three-team trade. Okay, that makes sense. Luke Kennard, he's dealt with health problems. He's coming up at the end of his contract for his second contract. We saw he got four years, $64 million from the Clippers. You're a team that's not going to be competitive in the short term. You really don't want to com- uh, commit substantial money to Luke Kennard at this point. I totally get that. Great trade. And then you factor in they also traded three of their own second round picks from 2024, 2025, and 2026. Now, what's going to happen there is I suspect that the reason they were so willing to give up those seconds was because they believe, and I believe also, they're going to be able to trade Derrick Rose before this year's trade deadline for multiple second round picks to a contending team. Expiring contract, $7 million, great creator on the perimeter. I'd be stunned if they don't get multiple second-round picks in return for Derrick Rose. So I assume that went into the thinking there. All right, let's get ourselves a 19th pick. Let's get off of Luke Kennard. We'll give up the seconds. We'll be able to replenish them. But still, again, that's three second-round picks right there. Turn take, uh kind of makes value a little bit less there as well. And then also in that trade, they take in Rodney Magruder, who that's a theme of their offseason too was taking on contracts that were more advantageous to stretch. They did it with Dwayne Dedman, trading Tony Snell and Kyrie Thomas to to Atlanta for Dedman. Dedman had the $13 million this year, non-guarantee next year, so you can pay out that money over five years instead of four. Rodney Magruder, same thing, partial guarantee next year, has his $5 million this year. They didn't end up doing the wave and stretch, but again, it was clear that was the intention of that acquisition, which he was a contract that would be advantageous to stretching. They got the 38th pick to take on Tony Bradley from Utah, Saban Lee they picked there, and then traded Tony Bradley for Zaire Smith and stretched Zaire Smith, so you're looking at the next five years, that's a loss of $3 million in space as a result of paying out that stretched money to Zaire and Dwayne Deadman. I don't have a terrible problem with stretching out contracts, but... When you're a team that's in the initial stages of building out your roster and you came into the offseason with so much space, they made a lot of moves where they were so aggressive and using that space for assets or free agent signings that they had to stretch out contracts and basically borrow against future years to be able to make their moves in this year work. For overall flexibility and optionality of moves, again, I'm not super crazy about that. Moving past that, then we go into free agency. Jeremy Grant, three years, $60 million. I like Jeremy Grant. I think if he's your fourth best player and is a starter at the four who's focused on defense and three-point shooting and a limited offensive role, like he was with Denver, then you're very well off. But an expanded offensive role? I, I'm not sure I see it. And especially looking at how this team is constructed with this large emphasis on bigs, pushing him out to the three rather than the four, I'm not crazy about it. But again your team is going to be at the bottom. Obviously, that's a strategic point of their overall process here. He's not going to get in the way of you losing games as a primary offensive option. I kind of look at it as Marcus Morris. If Marcus Morris had stayed with the Knicks on a four-year, $64 million contract, if he's your relatively one of your two best players making that money, your team's not really going anywhere. Right now, it's in the Pistons' best interest to not really go anywhere and be in strong draft pick positioning and that's what Jeremy Grant and that much money, frankly, does to this team in the short term. I like Jeremy Grant a lot, just not so much an expanded offensive role. Mason Plumlee at three years, $25 million. This was the contract I was not, really was not crazy about. I like Plumlee. I do. Solid backup center. And if he's your starting center on a team like this who's positioning themselves in the lottery, that's fine. But we look at the big man market every offseason. There's quality backup to fringe starter centers available. Nerlens Noel got a one-year deal at six million. Dwight Howard got the minimum. Robin Lopez got overpaid at seven million dollars or so. But again, it's expiring money, not too much money. You can get a guy year over year. Plumlee at three years for eight million a year. That's a bit rich for my tastes. Jalil Okafor two years at the minimum. Again, it's a lot of bigs there, so. You want to give Isaiah Stewart minutes. You have Mason Plumley making $8 million a year. You've added Jaleel Okafor. You have Blake Griffin. You have Sekou Dombaya, who is a focal point of your overall build. You have Jeremy Grant as well. There's a glut of guys who are very... You have a glut of bigs, really, at the five, at the four, and then guys who should be playing at the four, who you have to put at the three. Now, my favorite move they made this offseason was Josh Jackson for two years at the room exception. Good in preseason, had a good game last night, and when he he balled out in the G League, when Memphis got him as part of that Javon Carter, DeAnthony Melton trade, balled out in the G League, and he had some flashes where he was pretty good for Memphis last year. And I understand why Memphis didn't bring him back. Memphis, again, they have a very strong, crowded roster. But I think Josh Jackson, in a bench role, can provide you offense, and is a guy who had the room exception I'd be all over. I think that's a fantastic signing, and he's going to be a guy who they're effectively going to find not a diamond in the rough type, but they're going to find a guy who's going to outperform the value of that contract. I think he's going to be a very strong bench scorer for this team, and we saw it last night. He played significant minutes, especially in a close game. They uh, They didn't get the win, but again, you look at Josh Jackson last night. Josh Jackson put up points. He put up 19 points. He played 29 minutes. You look at the rest of the minutes there. Blake Griffin played 35. Jeremy Grant 31. Mason Plumlee 32. DeLon Wright 19. Killian Hayes 21. Outside of Griffin, Grant, and Plumlee, Josh Jackson played the most minutes on this team. I mentioned earlier, I didn't specifically talk about Sadiq Bay. I like Sadiq Bay a lot. Got him at 19. Very simple. 3 and D archetype player who can fit into any team in the league. But again, we look at last night. Isaiah Stewart didn't play. Sadiq Bey didn't play. And of course, you don't want to just throw your young guys out there and throw feed them to the wolves, so to speak. But again, your team building for the future, you got to get reps for these young players on a consistent basis. Looking at the draft, Killian Hayes at seven. I like that pick a lot. I think I look at Killian Hayes. I see a lot of D'Angelo Russell. I think not quite as athletic. Needs to improve his right hand as well but I see a lot of D'Angelo Russell, a little bit of Manu Ginobili there as well. They're going to give him a ton of run here, which is the best thing they can do because at this point, he, in terms of a franchise-building sense, is the default franchise player until they make their pick in the 2021 draft. So that is a lot there. Putting it all together, Wayne Ellington on the minimum as well, I really like Sfi as a 2-3, who is a knockdown, lights-out three-point shooter. I like the idea of Sekundon Mbaya. It's going to take some time, and he's going to need to get minutes. And He's kind of project type, but I think there's really good upside there. He just needs to get the minutes and opportunity to reach that point. Derek Rose, again, I'd be stunned if they don't trade him for multiple second-round picks. DeLon Wright, I really like. And you need to get opportunity and minutes in there for Isaiah Stewart. It's tough with the bigs they have. I think looking at Blake Griffin specifically, Blake Griffin two years ago was an All-NBA player and as a ball-handling, passing big who can score on the inside, can shoot threes. When Blake Griffin is healthy, two years ago we saw it. He's tremendous. Fits the modern NBA like a glove. However, we saw last year his body is falling apart on him. And it's a shame because he's a fantastic player. So if Blake Griffin can come out and show you in the early season – that he can produce at a high level. The move there is to move Blake Griffin. Again, that's substantial money, but we'll see if that's something they're able to do. I think with the Pistons, what you look at is this. They're building for the future, not the now. They made a ton of moves, but none of which are going to get in the way of them getting a high draft pick unless they just give the young guys outside of Hayes very little to no run and just play these veterans. I don't like stretching out contracts just because I don't like taking up future space and optionality and flexibility. Not just specifically looking at what they did, just as an overall principle of mine. I like Bay. I want to see Stewart get some reps before I really have an overall view there. I like Hayes. I like Svee. I don't like the money devoted to Plumlee or Grant, even though I like them as players. So I think it's a lot of moves, some questionable, but hey, Troy Weaver is a fantastic personnel executive. He's shown that being with OKC for so many years and recruiting Carmelo to Syracuse under Jim Boeheim. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt here. A lot happened this offseason, some questionable, some really solid. Very much on two different spectrums. But again, I see them as the 14th team in the East here. I think the roster is a bit weird. And they're going to have to eventually move some veterans and give their young guys more run. Now let's go to the team who I think will finish 13th in the East, and that's the New York Knicks. And I thought the New York Knicks had a great offseason. They were patient. They valued having their space to take on assets. They did not give anyone substantial long-term money. They are positioning themselves to be a team with a high draft pick in a very loaded draft in 2021 where the impact on business of losing games and not being a good team during the season there's no business to really be impacted because of the unfortunate circumstances going on I think they had a great offseason looking at the draft specifically they came into the draft with 27 and 38 outside of obviously having the eighth pick they came out of it with 8 25 and 33 Obi Toppin at eight, Emmanuel quickly at 25, turned 33 into a 2023 second-round pick. I like Toppin. I think he's going to struggle defensively, but I think offensively he is dynamite. Dynamite. Would I have taken over Tyrese Halliburton? I don't know about that, but I think Toppin is going to be a very strong, high-level offensive player. Emmanuel quickly he looked very solid in preseason. He's got to get run during the course of the season, but he looks to me like a very dependable score first point guard. they took on Ed Davis from Utah and got two future second round picks to do so 2023 they then trade trade Ed Davis to Minnesota because Minnesota has to shed a roster spot getting back Omari Spellman and Jacob Evans they get a second round pick there as well so that's three second round picks right there they sign Alec Burks for one year at 6 million Newlands Noel one year at five million. Bring back Alfred Payton, one year, $4.7 Austin Rivers, interesting contract, three years, $10 million. Years, two and three, non-guaranteed. And I, I would have liked to have seen them bring back Damian Dawson, but it's not the end of the world. So put all together here, the Knicks still sit there at about $18 million in space. They have substantial funds available to take on more money for more assets. You look towards the future, outside of Julius Randle, there is nobody on this team who was signed past this year, making double-digit millions in annual salary. You have Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens Noel, so you're going to consistently have an elite-level rim protector on the floor at all times. You have Toppin, who, again, I think is going to be in the running for Rookie of the Year, is going to be a very strong offensive player. You still have Julius Randle. I think, really, they're going to have to find a way to move out Randle to open up that spot fully for Toppin. I'd like to see them play Brad Dykus a little bit, but I'm not going to hold my breath on that. Reggie Bullock, I think if he can stay healthy, is someone they'll be able to trade for a second-round pick to a contending team. Kevin Knox, you know, he he looked good in the final two preseason games, did not look good last year. They got to give him time. They got to give him reps to see, all right, what do we have in Kevin Knox? What is Kevin Knox? Is he ready yet, or is he going to be a significant long-term project? And then you look at Alec Burks. To me, again, he's coming off a year where he had a very strong year with the Warriors and the Sixers. Volume bench scorer. Last night, he lit it up. He had 22 points, played 32 minutes. You look past that. Dennis Smith and Frank, I don't see them getting many minutes this season. Alfred Payton, not crazy about them bringing him back, but I understand it. He's a dependable, safe, backup-level point guard. Emmanuel quickly with what we saw in preseason. And last night, before he got hurt with the um, uh, with his hip, I think Emmanuel has looked very solid. The, the overall point here is this: they have veterans who they're going to be able to flip for second round picks. They have a coach in Tom Thibodeau who typically is the coach of winning teams who play veterans and who is a strong defensive coach. What has to happen here is a commitment to playing their young guys consistent, significant minutes. Last night, Mitchell Robinson played 21 minutes, Obi Toppin 24 minutes, Kevin Knox 18 minutes. Emmanuel quickly got hurt, so can't really factor that in as can't factor that in the same way. And then obviously the crown jewel here of this team is RJ Barrett. He's their franchise player. I'm not sold on RJ Barrett becoming a, an elite level player. But he looked great last night. I think he's a candidate for most improved player of the year if he can keep that up. Long term, I'm not the the highest on him. But again, he is their franchise player at this point. So it has to be a balancing act here where, okay, we have veterans that we want to cash in on their value. We have young guys who we need to build out this team with, see what we have, and figure out really who our foundational pieces as we move forward. We know Mitchell Robinson is one of them. We know Obi Toppin is one of them. We know R.J. Barrett is one of them. You have Emmanuel Quickly on a rookie contract for multiple years here. Austin Rivers is an interesting, uh, non-guaranteed for two years trade chip contract. Alec Burks, I'd be stunned if they can't turn him into a second-round pick or two. If Reggie Bullock stays healthy, again, I'd be surprised there as well. So, you know, it was interesting also to look at the end of the offseason. Would they get involved in sending out some money and bringing in Nick Batum just to get some assets involved there as well? I think what needs to happen here is, can they find a place to trade Julius Randle too? Can they find a way, especially with OKC having a $27.5 million trade exception and a $19 million trade exception, can they find a way to leverage their space and take in more second round picks or maybe a young player, especially now... And the 2021 offseason is not as attractive as it once was. But looking at it this way, I see it like this. If they can commit to playing their young guys consistently and get second-round picks for these veterans and be in the top five of the draft, then that's a successful season. So I like the patient approach they're taking so far. And I'm really interested to see what growth we see out of these young players on the Knicks. So for me so far... I have them as the 13th team in the standings in the Eastern Conference. Next, we go to the 12th seed team in my predictions for the season, and that is the Charlotte Hornets. Charlotte Hornets signed Gordon Hayward to a four-year, $120 million contract this offseason, drafting LaMelo Ball, third overall, drafting Vernon Carey in the early second round, trading back into the second round to select Nicholas Richards, Selecting Grant Riller at the end of the second round on a two-way contract he's on. One of my favorite picks of the whole draft. Stretching Nick Batum, thus paying him $9 million a year for the next three years in order to bring in Gordon Hayward. Essentially making Gordon Hayward's deal, the overall output there, that's a $39 million a year expense. Uh, Leveraging Boston's ability to get a trade exception in signing and trading Hayward to them and getting two second round picks for their troubles. Brought back Bismack Biambo. So there's a lot here with the Hornets. Gordon Hayward played great last night. Terry Rozier went off for 42. Devontae Graham had a breakout season last year. Did not discuss an extension with him or come to an agreement. They could have offered him four years for $54 million. That didn't happen. So if I'm Graham, I'm willing to bet on myself and forego that, especially with the space available that teams have this offseason. But... That's an interesting proposition there because you have LaMelo Ball and Terry Rozier and Graham had such a good year last year. So I'm intrigued to see what will happen and come out of uh, the season that Graham will have and what his contract ramifications will be. Looking at this roster again, Cody Zeller, he broke his hand. He's out for four to six weeks at this point. I men- I- I'd i seen it mentioned that head coach James Borrego had discussed playing some lineups with P.J. Washington at the five. I think P.J. Washington is an overall very solid player. I don't think there's one thing I specifically point to and say, all right, P.J. Washington is elite at that. He excels at that, but he's very solid across the board. He can shoot from the outside, he can rebound, he can play in the interior, good defensively. So I'm intrigued there. Can they play some lineups with him at the five? Just put Hayward down at the four. You have Miles Bridges in there. Do you want to do some three-guard lineups with the mellow? Graham, and Rozier, obviously you can because LaMelo is so big. I really like LaMelo Ball. I think he's going to be the best player in this draft class, and I think he's going to be the rookie of the year. I think you're looking at him, and it's a better version of Lonzo Ball. And that's not a knock on Lonzo Ball. I love Lonzo Ball. Very big fan of his. But LaMelo is more confident and more flashy offensively. I think he's more willing to take shots from the perimeter to high level. Again, needs to get that shot to a consistent level, and a good level, but if he can get a consistent good outside shot, we could be looking at a Trey Young offensive player who's also six foot seven. That's a tremendous proposition right there. Defensively needs to improve, but again, he has so much size that that should be able to cover for it to an extent. And then looking at this team, I like Miles Bridges. Can he bring more and expand his overall offensive game? I think looking at the rest of this team, there's some solid depth there. There's some intriguing options. But the fact of the matter is this. If Gordon Hayward gets hurt, this is one of the worst teams in the league. And even with Gordon Hayward, they're, they lost to Cleveland their opening game. They're not a good team at this point. They're a young team with intriguing options. P.J. Washington, LaMelo Ball, Devontae Graham, those are three guys right there that I think are really interesting young players to build out the long-term future of this team with. Obviously, Gordon Hayward is a part of that long-term future signed for four years. If they could get off of Terry Rozier's contract, I'm sure they would. But again, that's a pretty substantial contract. He had a great night last night. So, Vernon Carey, Nick Richards... Vernon Carey and Nick Richards, I'm not sure I'm too high on either one, but again, if you can get cheap depth and depth at the five with those guys, that's fine. But looking overall here at Charlotte, I see this. I see a team that it's going to take more time. They're going to have a ton of space this coming offseason, even with the Hayward contract. They're going to have a high draft pick again. So can they figure out some interesting lineup combinations? Can they get more out of P.J. Washington? Can they get more out of Miles Bridges? You know where? What kind of contract are we looking at for Devontae Graham? Is there a way you can get off of Terry Rozier's contract? Where does LaMelo Ball fit as far as the best lineup configurations you can put out there? I think a lot of this season for Charlotte, because this is not a playoff team, a lot of the value here is what guys fit together best, uh, can we continue to improve our long-term keepers I just mentioned? And what does our future look like with Devontae Graham as far as his contract is concerned? So I have them at 12th there in the East, and it wouldn't totally stun me if they're lower than that. Next we go to a team who last night looked like they should be lower than this spot, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for now at the eleven seed in the East, and that is the Chicago Bulls, who did not have a great game last night against the Atlanta Hawks. But the Chicago Bulls are in a very, very interesting spot right now. The Chicago Bulls have, in this coming offseason, Laurie Markkanen is going to have his rookie contract be up. They're going to have a ton of cap space. Otto Porter's contract is going to be up. If they haven't, they will have the ability to trade Zach Levine still. They'll have another season of Kobe White. They'll have another season of Wendell Carter, who's been disappointing to this point. Looking at the offseason they just had, drafted Patrick Williams fourth overall. Bit of a surprise just based off of guys who I thought would have been better picks at that spot. But I totally see the allure of Patrick Williams at that spot. Super athletic, can stay in front of guards who are much, who are smaller, who are quicker than him. Uh, Freakish athleticism. I think he's a guy who, it's going to be a bit of a project type of player. But if all goes right, I, I totally see the upside. I just look at Patrick Williams, and I think it's probably going to take some time there for him to ultimately reach what the greatest level of his upside is. But on that same coin, Chicago is going to give him significant opportunity to get reps and improve right away. We saw last night, he played 33 minutes. He's going to start for this team. He scored 16 points last night as a whole— These guys, these big upside type players, you need to give them a ton of reps and a ton of opportunity to work out the kinks and to improve and develop. And that's what the Bulls are going to do. Kobe White, last season, before the shutdown in March, had some monster, monster offensive games. He'll have games where he looks incredible, he'll have games where, like last night, he went 2-for-11 from the field. And... Sometimes you look at his passing, he's not a fantastic playmaker, not the best defensively. Again, though, how is he going to get better? Consistent reps and opportunity with a lot of minutes. You have a new head coach in Billy Donovan. You have a new front office. Chris Dunn is out. Shaq Harrison is out. They retain Denzel Valentine. Uh, Garrett Temple, I like that signing in the offseason. Basically, slightly more than what the room exception would have been. Great veteran presence, 3 and D. I think having these young guys in the locker room, I think there's a lot of value there in what Garrett Temple can bring to this locker room. And there's a lot of, and this is something I said last year looking at this Bulls team, there's a lot of interesting pieces. And there's a lot of different paths and opportunities and moves the Bulls can make and take with this new front office and with contracts coming up and with the space they have this coming off season. Ryan Archie Diakono is on an affordable contract with $3 million a year. Not bad. Decent bench piece. Wendell Carter, again, is he going to be able to get that shooting back to a decent level? And is he going to be someone who, you know, I think he's been a little bit disappointed to this point, but is this going to be a year where he takes it up a notch? Laurie Markkinen, great as a rookie. Last year, not the not a great year. What type of year does he have and what do you value him at for his second contract? I like Daniel Gafford. They picked in the early second round in 2019. Chandler Hutchison. Again, he's dealt with injuries, but again, as a 3 and D wing type. I like him. Luke Cornett. I don't mind him. Again, a big who can shoot on a cheap contract deep on the bench. I love Thomas Sadoransky. Can shoot. Super tall. Great passer. There's a lot of interesting. Thaddeus Young as well. on An interesting contract with a partial guarantee in the last year. There's a lot of interesting pieces here. So I think you look at this year and you say, do they trade Zach Levine? What is Zach Levine's value out there? What is Laurie Markin in second contract look like if he has a good season or if he does not have a good season? Is he a part of this team's long-term future? They didn't necessarily do anything too too outside of the box this offseason, but this coming offseason, there is going to be a ton of potential For change with this team, so it's more of a it's really just a matter of for this Bulls team, give Patrick Williams reps, give Kobe White reps, figure out if you're going to trade Zach Levine or not, and figure out if Lori Markin and Wendell Carter Jr. are really long-term pieces for this team. See if you can get a second-round pick for Garrett Temple, and move forward from there. Can Otto Porter's big expiring be a way to bring in more money long-term with an asset or to package with some other young players for a higher-level player? Again, lots of interesting opportunities here, but overall, I have them at 11th right now. That performance last night was not great, but a very intriguing next, we'll say next 10 months is coming for the Chicago Bulls organization. At number 10, we have the Orlando Magic, the Orlando Magic who just gave Markel Fultz a three-year extension for $51 million with a team option for the third year. The Magic, who drafted Cole Anthony in the middle of the first round in this past draft, Magic just signed Jonathan Isaac to a four-year extension at $80 million. It's a shame that Isaac is going to be out for the season with injury because looking at Isaac, that's a guy who I think you're looking at is when he's healthy and is able to come back in the following season. That's a defensive player of the year caliber player really is. You obviously have Nick Vujicic. He's an all-star level player. Terrence Ross making about 14 million a year. Truma Okiki, who they picked in the first round in 2019 did not sign him because he was not going to play due to injury for the season. I think that Okiki is going to be a very interesting addition to this team. Okiki can space the floor, can shoot threes. He's a versatile defender on the ball, off the ball. A good passer for his size, can rebound. I think there's a lot to like with Okiki. I remember watching him before injury when he was at Auburn. He kind of, you know, there's certain players who, they really, they, they bounce off the screen. they They really capture your eye. And Okiki was one of those players. So, seeing him be able to come back, and he's produced in the preseason, he's going to get run this season, I think that he's going to be a very interesting addition to this team. And, just as a prototype of what this Orlando Magic team likes, they like length, they like versatility, they like defense, wings who are very, very big, Okiki fits that mold, and he brings something that this Magic team needs, which is more shooting. So, again, very interesting addition for this team. And then, of course, you have Aaron Gordon, who perpetually is in trade rumors, a sought-after player, a big contract descending in salary year-over-year. I'm not the craziest about Aaron Gordon. I think there have been points where I think the Magic would have been better off cashing in on his value. Of course, he's a very good player, but just based on what's there, I, I still do not like that Vucevic, Gordon, Isaac front court. You have Okiki there as well, so... I think at some point it probably behooves Orlando to see what the value out there for Gordon is because there are plenty of teams that would be interested. But then you also look at this Orlando team and you have you know guys like Dwayne Bacon and James Ennis who are nice depth pieces who are competing with each other to play you know, consistent minutes. Dwayne Bacon played 20 minutes in the game yesterday where they beat Miami. I like Ken Burch as a backup big. Michael Carter-Williams has been solid for them. Terrence Ross I mentioned earlier. Mo Bamba, is he ever going to figure it out? I don't know. I love this Orlando team. Put it all together. This is a team that, and look, this is fine. They're content with being stuck in the middle and pursuing a playoff berth every year. That's okay. That's fine. To each their own. I just think that if they want to make a move for a high-level player, I think they're getting to the point with the salaries that they have and the young players they have that they could do so. I think that they're getting to the point where you're with the players they have and Isaac potentially coming back after the season and being healthy, being at $20 million a year now, having uh, Chumo Kiki come back. I think it's gotten to the point where they probably should see what they can get for Aaron Gordon. Markel Fultz, again, I'd like to see him be as close as possible to what he was projected to be coming out of the draft. I don't think that's going to happen. And that contract is really, really substantial. I, I think you look at Fultz and you look at, all right, what you want him to be long-term is probably like a Sean Livingston type player. And with how deep point guard is and with the quality of players out there each offseason, I get that Fultz is very young, could continue to improve, maybe get his shot back. But $17 million a year, that, that's a pretty hefty amount. It gets kind of balanced out with the third year being a team option, but again, Pretty hefty amount there for Fultz. I look at this Orlando team, I have them at 10. I think Atlanta's better. I think Washington's better. I think they're to me. Again, they're just stuck in the middle. They're a team that has a ton of length, ton of defensive versatility. They don't have enough shooting. There's interesting young player coming in in Chumokiki, an interesting young player coming in in Cole Anthony. They're basically capped out at this point. Not basically. They are capped out at this point. I think if this team wants to... I think just with Atlanta's moves that they've made with what Washington has on their team for the few coming years and what the teams below them are building, I think long-term this team really wants to be a consistent playoff berth team. They're probably going to need to make one or two pretty substantial moves. Again, packaging of some players for a higher-level player or trading Aaron Gordon for another player that fits better. I think that's what we're looking at with this team, and I think for this coming season, I have them as the 10th seed in the East, and I really think Atlanta and Washington are definitively better teams than Orlando. Next, we go to the team that I have projected to be 9th in the East, and that is the Atlanta Hawks, who were incredibly active this offseason, head of basketball operations Travis Schlenk, Went out there and spent a lot of money to significantly improve this team. Danilo Gallinari, three years, sixty-one and a half million. Year three, only guaranteed for five million. It's the it's out there, obviously, and apparent that the role that Gallinari is going to have with this Hawks team is coming off the bench as a super sixth man type. With John Collins starting at the four, obviously. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich on the four-year, $72 million offer sheet that got him in there with a 15% trade kicker and a player option in year four. Signing Rajon Rondo, two years, $15 million. Signing Chris Dunn for two years at the room exception. Drafting Onyeka Okongwu at seventh overall. Clint Capella, who they traded for last year, yet to play a game for them. Last season was out with injury, missed their game last night. John Collins and the Hawks, they did not come to an extension agreement. This is an interesting team. I think what the Hawks were looking at is this. This is a ridiculously interesting team as far as the five-man groups they can put out there. This is going to be a team full of offense. This is a team who had weaknesses that they addressed. Specifically, backup point guard last year they went into the season with Evan Turner is the backup point guard. Now they have Rajon Rondo and Chris Dunn. Speaking of Chris Dunn, that's a weakness they also addressed. Defense. Clint Capella has not played a game for them yet. Obviously, he's going to be a major difference to their overall defense from the inside out. Chris Dunn, high-level defensive player. You look at Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter and hope that they can improve defensively. So, depth as well. You look at this team now, there's Capella, there's Okungu there's John Collins, there's Dino Gallinari, there's Cam Reddish, there's DeAndre Hunter, there's Tony Snell, there's Bogdan Bogdanovich, there's Kevin Herter, there's Trey Young, there's Rajon Rondo, there's Chris Dunn. So there's a lot of optionality there, a lot of depth. I still think their defense is not going to be good. It will be better, but it will not be good. And I think what's interesting is I look at John Collins specifically here. They spent a ton of money out there this offseason. John Collins is a guy who, from what we've seen, he's a guy who can't play the five. He's a four. They have Klinkapella. They have, have Okangwu, They have signed Gallinari. They have these young wings in Hunter and Reddish and Herder. They have Bogdanovich. There's a lot of money devoted here. And with what John Collins can bring on the right team, You can look at John Collins and you can say, all right, that's a near-max player. For this Atlanta team, I'm not sure that with the substantial, substantial money they have out there already, with the money that's going to come in the coming years to Trey Young, and if they develop and continue to improve to DeAndre Hunter or and or Cam Reddish, that is an incredibly expensive team moving forward. So I was not surprised that John Collins did not get an extension there. And frankly, I'm not sure that I expect there to be an agreement where John Collins comes back and re-signs with Atlanta. Obviously, he's a restricted free agent. But again, mentioning the money devoted, the money coming down the line, his fit where he can really only play at the four, and his value to other teams, I think there's a recipe here where if Collins has a relatively similar season to what we've seen from him in past years, there's a pretty reasonable outlook for Collins to get a pretty big offer sheet or to be signed and traded or traded elsewhere. Another thing that was important for Atlanta to address was really being able to create offense outside of Trey Young. There was a really big need for them to have someone who could create offense for themselves with Young off the floor. Without Young on the floor last year, they were not a good offense at all. You now have Danilo Gallinari. You have Bogdan Bogdanovich. These are guys who can create their own shot, who can be great secondary perimeter scoring options to Trey Young. So, again, I mentioned these levels and areas they need to address. Defense, depth, backup point guard, other scoring creators. They did that. So, I think there's a lot of options here for Lloyd Pierce. There's going to be someone who's the odd man out as far as consistent minutes goes. I think this is going to be a high-level offensive team of an improved but still not good defensive team and a team who they're going to experiment a lot on a night-to-night basis and dependent on matchup as far as the five-man groups they roll out there. I liked what we saw uh, before the shutdown in March from Cam Reddish. He started to get better. DeAndre Hunter, you want to see him improve from what he showed in his rookie season. Cam Reddish had a slow start, as I mentioned, improved. So Kevin Herter I like, but I think at this point may be he is what he is at this point. And Trey Young, obviously, is one of the most gifted offensive players in the league, is very bad defensively. Does that inhibit them from competing at the highest level when they eventually are able to get there? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is this. They're going to they're gonna compete for that eight seed in the East. Them and Washington, very similar. High offensive teams, or high octane offensive teams, very little defense. Lots of depth, lots of intriguing options, lots of young players to develop and improve. I have them at nine, and I think it's between them and Washington for that eight spot. As of now, I think it goes to Washington. Speaking of Washington, I have them obviously, as I just stated, at the eight spot in the East. The John Wall for Westbrook trade I liked. You know, I'm not super crazy about giving up a first round pick to take in Westbrook, but again, I'd rather have Westbrook's contract than Wall's contract. I'd rather have Westbrook than Wall. I know Westbrook is sure Wall has shown. Flashes at being his former self in the preseason at times for Houston, but Russell Westbrook's an all NBA, all star level player at this point. John Wall hadn't played in two years when this trade was made. The way the pick is protected, as I mentioned in the West podcast episode, it's unlikely that that'll convey and protect it against conveying as a high level draft pick in the future. The goal here is to keep Bradley Beale happy and to want to stay in Washington. Having Russell Westbrook on the team instead of John Wall does that. We saw it last night in their game against the Sixers. This is a high-level offensive team. They're going to live and die by their scoring output each night. Defensively, they're not going to stop a ton of players on opposing teams. I think if you look at what the optimal lineup is for a Russell Westbrook team, you need to have a team where you can play five out, and your bigs have the ability to shoot the ball. He needs to be surrounded with shooting. You have that on this team. Thomas Bryant is a great fit as a five on a Russell Westbrook team. Bradley Beal is a phenomenal player. I think even with their best efforts here to keep him happy and in Washington, eventually what's going to happen is he's going to one out. And when he does, I think there's going to be a substantial market with the Pelicans at the front of the line. But for now, again, you're looking at an all-NBA, all-star caliber player who's been given another all-Star caliber player, All-NBA-level player to play alongside of him in Russell Westbrook. I like Troy Brown at the three. I like them picking Denny at ninth overall in the draft. I like Hachimura. Davis Bertans' contract at five for 80 was pretty substantial, but again, provides them significant shooting. Robin Lopez's contract, I like him as a backup. That was a bit pricey, though, at $7 Ish Smith I liked as... I like as a guy who can come off the bench and be a guy who creates offense as a ball handler, as a point guard. I'm not crazy about the lineups where they had Ish Smith and Westbrook in the game at the same time last night with one of the two playing off the ball. Moritz Wagner I like. That trade they made taking in Wagner and Bonga from the Lakers was great. Bonga I like a lot. There's interesting pieces on this team. Jerome Robinson, we'll see if he gets any minutes or run, but again, that's a guy who I think he's not going to live up to the promise of where he was picked, but could be an interesting offensive-minded scoring guard off the bench. The point over here, or point altogether with Washington, is you now have a high-level, elite backcourt duo. You are going to score a ton of points. Your team makes sense as far as fit and optimizing the Abilities and skills of your best players. I think Troy Brown has room to get better. I think you look at that 3-4 spot, that mix of Brown and Denny and Rui and Bonga and Bertans. I think that's a really nice mix. Obviously, Hachimura is out with injury right now. But I look at Denny and I see a better, more athletic Dario Saric. I like Bonga's size and versatility and athleticism. I really think there's a lot to like with this Washington team. I think they are capped at a certain level as a first-round loss team, and they're going to really, really struggle to stop teams defensively. I think we're looking at a top-10 offense, bottom-10 defense team for sure. But very intriguing team. They will be a very exciting league pass team to watch. Not a team that's really confusing. You know that they're going to get buckets, and try to win that way. And if they don't get buckets in that game, they're going to lose. But they have interesting young players. Pieces that fit. Thomas Bryant, again, is the perfect center for this team as far as what he can bring in a spacing sense. Can they keep Bradley Beale happy? Can they keep him there long term? We shall see. But I have Washington at 8. And, again, all offense. Very little defense. First round exit. But I have them getting the 8 seed. As far as other moves they made during the offseason, we look at the draft. I mentioned them picking Denny at nine. They traded Admiral Schofield in the 37th pick to Oklahoma City for Cassius Winston, the 53rd pick who they got in on two way and a 2024 second. Raul Neto, they got in there on a minimum. And just looking at this team, I think an interesting signing there was Anthony Gill, two year deal, second year non guaranteed. He's been a very high level player in Europe. Again, it's just a matter of, will they be able to figure out, of this group, who are the foundational young guys on this team? How are they going to improve their defense long term? And again, on a night night basis, can they score enough points to beat teams? Because they're going to be an incredible offensive team, but a bad defensive team. Now let's go to the team I have as the seventh seed in the East for this coming season, and that is the Indiana Pacers. The Pacers really kept it together. Not much difference in their roster last year to this year. New head coach, though, Nate Bjorken, uh, taking over for Nate McMillan. Justin Holiday, they re-signed three years, $18 million. I really like that deal. They traded TJ Leaf in a second to OKC for Jalen LeKay You know that TJ Leaf, at this point, is what he is. Not that good. And Jalen McKay, I think, is an interesting flyer to take. Uh, They drafted Cassius Stanley with the 54th pick. Other than that, you're basically looking at the same team, outside of the fact that they have a new head coach. I think that, and we don't know exactly what happened with the discussions, but if it was a possibility, I think being able to have traded Miles Turner in a signing trade for Gordon Hayward, with obviously Hayward coming to Indiana, would have been tremendous for them. I think at this point, obviously it's clear to see that Demata Sabonis is a star, and that him and Turner playing together, it's just not the best fit. And I think they know it. I think we all know it. But again, you're on two substantial contracts there. Sabonis so is a stud. Turner is good, has not taken that leap to be that stud-level player that many, including myself, had hoped he would be. But I, I, I'm just not crazy about the two of them playing together. That's why I think it would have been such a great, great move if they could have moved Turner for Hayward. I think that sort of mold where moving Turner for a wing tweener type would make a ton of sense. But the real question here for Indiana, especially with the roster continuity in place, is what what happens with Victor Oladipo? It seems like Victor Oladipo wants out. Victor Oladipo coming off injury did not look like the same level of player last year. He has to reestablish that value going into a free agency that is getting thinner by the day with many teams with space. I, I think it gets to a point where if you're Indiana, would you want to move Oladipo to get something for him? Would you want to ride out the season with him playing at a high level to have the best result you possibly could this season? It's really... It's an interesting proposition to think about. And then, of course, you have the fact the the component of what is Victor Oladipo as a player? Is he the player we saw last year where he was not at the level he was before coming off of injury? Or are we going to see the Victor Oladipo we saw before injury, an all-star level player? Outside of that, again, this team has strong depth. Brogdon is one of the most stable, steady players in the league, a great point guard. TJ Warren went off in the bubble. We'll see if he can continue that. Obviously, it's a very tough thing to sustain, but if he can... Somewhat replicate that into this season. I like Aaron Holiday. I love TJ McConnell. And you have shooting coming off the bench in Doug McDermott and a wing scorer and shooting off the bench in Justin Holiday as well. So relatively the same team. We'll see if Goga Patadze can have a better year. I liked him in the draft in 2019. But I think the Pacers are a tier above those Hawks-Wizards teams, but they're a tier below uh, the teams I'm going to get into coming up next. And speaking of that, the team I have at 6 in the East for this coming season, the Philadelphia 76ers. So, the Sixers, coming out of last season, a bad season, a team with a roster that didn't fit, uh, with a head coach who seemed to be at the end of the line, they come out of it. They have Daryl Morey, at the head of their front office. They have Doc Rivers as their head coach. They're able to turn Josh Richardson into a better-fitting piece in Seth Curry, obviously with the 36th pick included as well, which became Tyler Bay. The ill-fitting Al Horford traded to OKC with a 2025 first-round pick attached to him, as well as the 34th pick in this draft, which became Theo Maladon, and the rights to Vasa Micic, which could be the gem of that entire trade. And then obviously getting back Danny Green, Terrence Ferguson, and Vincent Poirier. Signing Dwight Howard at the minimum to be the backup to Joel Embiid. Drafting Isaiah Joe in the second round. Drafting Paul Reed in the second round and getting him in there on a two-way. Drafting Tyrese Maxey in the first round and what could be one of the best picks of that entire first round. Retaining, obviously using a portion of the tax mid-level to sign Isaiah Joe, but retaining a substantial amount of it to use for buyouts in the season, getting an $8.1 million trade exception as a result of the OKC trade. You look at the Sixers team, I think the weakness is they need a better stretch for coming off the bench than Mike Scott. I think that I have earmarked for this team with that trade exception is Nemanja Bjelica from Sacramento. I think would fit perfectly and I would envision Sacramento not being a playoff team, Bjelica on expiring, they'd be willing to move off of him. Dwight Howard I think is the perfect backup to Joel Embiid at the 5, maybe the best backup Joel Embiid has ever had at the 5. I think Danny Green and Seth Curry, obviously they are way better fits than what was there. In an ideal scenario, they're both bench players. So I think you're going to have to look as the season goes along, not only the four, but we mentioned there's over 4 million left of the the tax mid-level exception. There's the $8.1 million trade exception. There are avenues to adding talent to this team, and they're going to need to at the wing, at the 2-3 spot, and at the four off the bench. I think we're going to see Shaq Milton starting for this team very, very soon. I think Shaq Milton is a candidate for most improved player of the year. Milton has been tremendous. Ball handler, can play on off the ball, can score, can get to the rim. He's decisive. He's aggressive. Tyrese Maxey and Milton together as a unit off the bench last night was tremendous. They complement each other very well. Maxey, a physical, rugged, fiery ball handler who plays hard, gets to the rim. Great passer. Plays tough nose defense. The thing with the Sixers is their bench, and this is something that's been said on other podcasts but it's a clear view if you watch them play, is their bench is very streaky. You know, Furkan Korkmaz could be lights out for a couple games, but could go cold. Mike Scott was cold last year, but the year before that, when they got him in the Tobias Harris trade, he was great. Those are guys they're going to have to rely on as pivotal pieces of their rotation. Matisse Thybul, he's probably going to be a situational defensive piece late in games. Being a consistent rotational piece, at least at this point, is not necessarily something that's clearly apparent. Looking at this team roster-wise, you have Embiid, who looked to be in very, very good shape, who is a dominant player, who, look, you give him the ball in the post, no one's going to stop him. He can't do that consistently throughout a game because it's tiring and will fatigue him, but at the end of the game, what's their option? They're going to throw the ball to Embiid on the post and say, all right, stop him. He's either going to get a bucket or get fouled. Last night, they went to him over and over In the fourth quarter, down the stretch, and he delivered. Ben Simmons, one of the best defensive players in the league. I think, I didn't mention him earlier, but I think he'll definitely be in that discussion for Defensive Player of the Year, one of the most versatile, high-level defenders across multiple positions in the whole league, unstoppable in transition. I think expecting the three-point shot to be a part of his game at this point, I I don't see it. However, I wouldn't be stunned to see some mid-rangers be thrown in here and there he took one last night I think that you know obviously the Tobias Harris contract is you know one of the worst contracts in the league you would like to think that being back with Doc Rivers that could unlock him more we shall see but again I come to this there needs to be additions made to this team with that trade exception with the non with the tax mid level exception that they still have over four million left, they need to add a guy at the two or the three. Who's a two way three and D type and a stretch four off the bench. Seth Curry and Danny Green, ideally are bench players. On this team, you're looking at probably what's going to end up happening: Shake Milton, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid. Overall, though, this is a better-fitting team that the Sixers have. Their offense will make more sense. Their best player will have significantly more space to operate. Defensively, they should still be good. But I'm not sure the overall talent level is that much better than last year's. The fit is better, and I think that helps. But without additions, I think the ceiling of this team is a second-round uh, a second-round loss. Now... Then comes the question of James Harden. Is that a trade they should pursue? There are lots of opinions out there on it. I think, yes, I love Ben Simmons, but I think the duo of Embiid and Harden would be tremendous. You have to look at it also. Embiid is 26 years old. You really need to capitalize right now while Embiid is still in his prime and is healthy. James Harden, yes, you're not going to get the longevity of an elite-level player of James Harden that you would get from Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons, obviously, 24 years old, an all-NBA-level player, signed for the next five years. James Harden, 31 years old, signed for two more years. His body's going to break down way sooner, obviously, than Ben Simmons, just based on age. That's a fact. But it's James Harden, and I think that has gotten lost... Uh, to a lot of people who have been analyzing this trade from the Sixers point. Now, obviously, I wouldn't make it a whole you know Simmons plus draft picks or Simmons plus X, Y, and Z. You'd have to look at it as a Simmons for Harden with maybe one draft pick attached to it. Outside of that, no, I, I don't think it's necessarily that great of a trade, but it's James Harden, and him and Embiid would be an incredible duo. It would be so tough to stop. And would raise the ceiling of this team pretty significantly in my opinion. So if it comes to it and becomes an option, I'd be all for uh, a Ben Simmons, James Harden trade. Now moving past the six seed Sixers in my predictions, let's go to the team I have at five. And that is the, do we call them Tampa? Do we call them Toronto? I don't know. We'll call them the Raptors the Raptors at the five seed in my predictions. They lost Serge Ibaka. They lost Marc Gasol. Bring in Aaron Baines on the mid-level exception. I like that move a lot. They bring in Alex Len as well. They're able to re-sign Fred Van Vliet. They structured it so that he had a I believe it was a pretty substantial percentage decrease in his year two salary so they could be players for Giannis in 2021. Obviously that didn't come to pass because Giannis signed the Supermax. Kyle Lowry, still a high-level player. One of the most dependable playoff performers out there. OG and Unobi, they just re-signed him uh, on a four-year deal for $72 million with a player option in the fourth year. So you have Van Vliet, Siakam, and OG locked up long-term. That's your long-term core right there. I liked the addition of DeAndre Bembry on a two-year deal at the minimum with a second-year non-guaranteed I've always kind of liked Ben Bray, and I think that there's an opportunity for him for him here to have a role with Toronto. They've spoken highly of him. I think he makes sense to get some minutes for them off the bench. Uh, Looking at what this team has off the bench, Malachi Flynn, 29th overall pick, I think is going to be a fantastic backup point guard for this team. Chris Boucher, the four spot or the five, I think he could be a guy who could have some sort of a mini breakout this season. They have Terrence Davis. There's Aaron Baines, who they got in on the mid-level exceptions I just mentioned. Stanley Johnson had a bad start to the season last year, but it got better as it went along. You have Matt Thomas off the bench, who's a knockdown shooter. Norman Powell, who is going to get himself a nice contract when his deal is up and can be a scorer for them. Off the bench, a very strong scoring wing. This is still a strong team. What really it comes down to for me is can Siakam be a little bit better as a top guy in the playoffs? And how much of a loss will they suffer having Abaka and Gasol gone and Baines and Alex Len in their spots? Giannis, now, not an option. They extend OG. I don't know what, what their thinking will be, but I do think there are some interesting options out there next year in the free agent class. And I think overall, look at this Toronto team and I see this. You have a lineup where you have Kyle Lowry, you have Fred Van Vliet, you have OG Ananobi, you have Pascal Siakam, and you have Aaron Baines. That's really strong. You have Norman Powell right off the bench. You have a fantastic, fantastic coach in Nick Nurse. Yeah, Kyle Lowry's older. Yeah, he'll probably miss some more games. But in the playoffs, again, he's one of the best consistent high-level performers in the playoffs. I think they're the fifth best team in the East. They're the fifth seed. I could see a scenario where they're six and the Sixers are five. But I think they're a middle-of-the-pack East team who is probably their ceiling is a second-round loss. Now we go to the team I have as the four seed in the East. And that's the Boston Celtics. Now, the Celtics are in an interesting spot to start the season. Kemba Walker's out until January. Gordon Hayward is gone. You We saw last night they, they beat Milwaukee. Giannis missed the free throw. You're going to need significant production out of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown really stepped up last night. I think Jalen Brown is going to be an all-star this season. Looking back at the offseason they had, they drafted Aaron Nesmith, big shooting, small forward, at 14. Peyton Pritchard at 26 over Malachi Flynn, over Desmond Bain, over Tyrell Terry. Wasn't crazy about that pick. They traded the 30th pick and Ennis Cantor. The Ennis Cantor ended up in Portland, the 30th pick ended up with Memphis. They got back two second-round picks coming in 2023 and 2024. They got off of Vincent Poirier as well. Tristan Thompson at the mid-level exception for two years. They needed a guy, again, who can play defense at the five. That was their biggest need. And I think Thompson fit the mold and fits the mold perfectly for them. They were able to get the trade exception in sending out Gordon Hayward in the sign sign-in trade, just a tad too small to get Bradley Beal. But again, they have it for a year, $28 million. That is substantial money. For this Celtics team that provides them with enormous optionality to add a pretty significant piece to this team. Now, this is an interesting move that under the radar, happened under the radar, but now obviously with the Walker situation is very, very critical. Jeff Teague signed him at the minimum. He was good last night, but again, he's going to have to perform at a level that we have not seen from him in a couple years while Kemba Walker is out. Obviously, the Jason Tatum, Supermax, Supermax, the Max extension coming off of the rookie contract at five years for 163. That could end up being five for 196. Brad Wanamaker went to the Warriors. You look at this team here, and I think that it's going to come down to how much better is Jalen Brown this season. Again, I expect him to be an all-star. And how much better is Tristan Thompson's presence How much is Tristan Thompson's presence going to better their overall defense and ability to stop bigs, uh, especially looking at the likes of Joel Embiid and Bam Adebayo, as the season goes along and in the playoffs? I think their draft was fine, but could have been better. 14-26-30 and to come out of it with Aaron Nesmith, Peyton Pritchard, and a second in 23-24. and That could have been better. I want to see improvement out of Romeo Langford. I want to see... Um, Jeff Teague be able to play at a high level while Kemba Walker is out they're going to need it I want to see if Grant Williams can expand his offensive game a little bit I really like Robert Williams, the time lord um, as a big time rim running center who can play defense and protect the rim, I really really like him so I think that depth at the 5 spot between him and Thompson is pretty solid, then obviously of course Daniel Tice as well who's a very solid backup center in my opinion So, I think with the Celtics, you look at it this way. You have one of the 15 best players in the league in Jason Tatum. You have a guy who's going to be an all-star this year in Jalen Brown. You have Kemba Walker when he comes back. You have one of the best defensive players in the league in Marcus Smart. You fortified your interior defense, which was a huge weakness last year in adding Tristan Thompson. You had an okay draft. You have some draft picks from past years that need to hit, like Romeo Langford like Carson Edwards, and you have a monster trade exception, which will provide you a ton of options and flexibility. So I think the Celtics are in a pretty similar boat to last year. Obviously, the loss of Hayward is significant. I look at them as the fourth seed in the East, and I look at them, and it really depends. Again, I go back to Jalen Brown, how much better he can be as far as what their ultimate ceiling is. Do I think they're a team that could make the finals? No. Do I think they're a team that could make it to the second round and give you a really tough six or seven game series but lose there? Yes. So, so it will be very interesting to see you know, how these new pieces impact their overall, I think especially defensively, Tristan Thompson being there in the middle, uh, how effective Kemba Walker is when he comes back, and how much these young players they have in place can improve. At number three in the East, I have the reigning Eastern Conference champion, Miami Heat. So the Heat this offseason, very strong draft. I like what they did at the time in preparing for Giannis by re-signing Dragic to big money with a team option for year two, Myers Leonard to an inflated contract with a team option for year two, Avery Bradley with a team option for year two at two years, six million per year, and then also in a nice sneaky little move as far as... Um, putting together the best use of their overall exceptions and whatnot, signing Mo Harkless for what was the value of the biannual at one year 3.6 million, but using that as part of their mid-level exception rather than the biannual exception to have that available to them moving forward into the coming off seasons. Signing BAM to that five-year 163 million max extension that can get up to 196. Bring back Udonis Haslam again. Udonis Haslam has to be a Miami Heat until he no longer wants to play. That's that's a must. I think Mo Harkless is a nice consolation for losing Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder was really, really impactful for them into the playoffs and into the finals. Lost Derek Jones Jr. as well. He went to Portland. So you look at it this way: they lose Jay Crowder. They replace him with Mo Harkless. They add Avery Bradley tough nose defender, can shoot threes as well. And this is a strong team. You, you also look at it bringing in uh, Precious in the first round as well. I think looking at this team, Bam Adebayo, I think, has another level to go to. I think he is one of the 25 best players in the league right now, and I think he'll be higher than that into the top 20, top, I'll say, 18-17 by season's end. Can Dragic play at the level that he played at last year and stay healthy? You know, is Tyler Hero going to take it up another level? I think they need to get more out of Kendrick Nunn than what he gave them in the playoffs, and I think he will. He was great during the regular season. Duncan Robinson is going to get paid this coming offseason. I love this Miami team. They have so much depth. They have so much versatility and flexibility. They have defense. They have shooting. They have a great style of play and a great team identity. Very simple here. Heat culture. They're gonna play hard. No game's gonna be easy. They're gonna play tough defense, and they're gonna have a ton of options to throughout you with five-man groups, depending on the game. I think, dependent on what it would take to get him, they make a lot of sense as a James Harden destination. I think if you could have a deal where Tyler Hero is the big piece in the deal, you definitely do it in a second. You really do. No question. You want to get a high-level elite player, James Harden's one of the six, seven best players in the league. And I like Tyler Hero, but I do think the hype has gotten a little bit too much. A little bit too much. I don't think that what we saw from them in the bubble was an anomaly or a matter of situational circumstance. I think that's really what this Miami team is. They're a team that, look... Game to game, no game against them is going to be easy. Is Jimmy Butler going to be able to shoot that well from three consistently? He didn't do it in the regular season last year, but I think that he can shoot as well from three as he did in the bubble. Can Goran Dragic play at the level he did last year? I think he can. Can the addition of Mo Harkless somewhat compensate for Jay Crowder? Not fully, obviously, but to an extent, I think it can. Can Tyler Hero play at the level he did in the bubble, especially deep into the playoffs and the finals, during the course of the regular season? I don't know about that, but again, I expect Hero to keep improving. So you look at this team, we just talk about depth and options here. Bam, Harkless, Robinson, Butler, Drogic, Nunn, Hero, Igadala, Kelly Olynyk, Precious, Avery Bradley... Casey Paulo was a very early second-round pick. Maybe we see something from him this season. Myers Leonard. There is a ton of depth on this team. This team is about 12 deep, 13 deep. There's a lot of value in that, and I think this is a team that can make it to the conference finals again. I think really the, the finals this year in the East is between two teams, but I do think that the Heat are capable of making it to the conference finals this year. Now, getting to those top two teams in the East, I'm going to have the Brooklyn Nets as my projected two seed in the East this year, and I cannot say enough positive things about the Brooklyn Nets. New head coach, Steve Nash. Head of the offense as an assistant coach, Mike D'Antoni. Jacques Vaughn brought back as an assistant coach. He did very well with the team he had in the bubble. Emu Doka is on that staff now. Amari Stoudemire is on that staff. And the big thing here that I look at with all of these top-of-the-league teams is depth. Who is the deepest team? Who has the most optionality and versatility in their five-man groups? And the answer to that is the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets are insanely deep. We saw Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving in the opening night game. KD looked like the KD of old. Kyrie was on fire. You look at that five-man bench unit of Jared Allen, Jeff Green, Torian Prince, Karis Levert, and of course Landry Shamit, who they got in that three-team trade where they sent out the 19th pick in the draft. Then, of course, on top of that, Kyrie, Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, Durant, DeAndre Jordan. I like Jared Allen more than DeAndre Jordan, but you know, based on circumstance, again, that's an incredible second unit. As I mentioned, I think Karis Levert is going to feast as a sixth man against other teams' second units. I think Jared Allen is going to get himself a nice second contract this offseason. Not from the Nets, but a nice second contract somewhere else. And then you look past that second uh, five-man group. Rodeo Kuroks. They just traded for Bruce Brown. Timotei Lawawu. Nick Claxton, who I think could be a nice backup center in this league. He's never going to get any playing time because this team has so much depth. Tyler Johnson, again, nothing special, but again, as a very, very back-end roster player, you can do way worse. And I just think you look at this Nets team putting that all together, this is a team that's 12 or 13 deep, has one of the three best players in the league, has another player who's one of the 15 best players in the league. You can throw so many different lineup combinations out there. So many different things situationally. I'm very excited to watch this team over the course of the season. And I have them here at 2. If they end up as the first seed in the East, it would not surprise me at all. I really think that this Nets team has the chance to be special. I said in the past that when Durant was healthy and when KD and Kyrie were able to play together, I said this last year during podcasts during last season and in last offseason, I've been on the boat saying the Nets were going to be one of the best teams in the league and a scary high-level team once Durant came back. That's not a crazy prediction or anything, but it's clear to see right now. Getting Bruce Brown for Zanin Musa, who was was on their G League team in Long Island for most of the season, was really a guy who was a non-contributor as a first-round pick a couple years ago. They got Bruce Brown as a much better player, a cheaper player for the cost of Toronto's 2021 second round pick. Rodeo's Kourouks had a nice rookie season. Nice depth piece, as we've seen over the course of his career. And he's a guy who's probably not even going to see minutes because of the depth this team has. Bringing in Jeff Green on a minimum this offseason. Why not? Add more depth? You go for it. Resigning Joe Harris for big money. You have Spencer Dinwiddie on a very nice value deal. This team is in such a great spot they don't have outstanding draft picks as far as going to other teams moving forward, you know, as long as KD and Kyrie can coexist, this is a team that's going to be looking at making the finals every single year over the next three years. And then we look at the other team who I could see making the finals, the team I right now have projected to be the one seed in the East, the recently uh, able to get Giannis to sign to the Supermax team of the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, it's unfortunate that they weren't able to get the Bogdan Bogdanovich sign-and-trade done. That would have made them a very scary team, but the Drew Holiday edition, fantastic, brings them another scoring option, like a true number two or number three scoring option, number three for them, obviously, because Chris Middleton is there, multiple, uh, versatile defender, high level elite, all-league defender, great passer, great scorer, just the perfect combo guard, the perfect combo guard. Chris Middleton, one of the most underrated, unheralded players in the league. And I say this as a guy who's an all-star. So consistent, so dependable, so efficient, great on both sides of the ball. And then, of course, Giannis, who's one of the three best players in the league. I worry about them. It's the same worry I had last year. I do worry about Giannis at the end of games and crunch time and in the playoffs just because of the lack of outside shooting. We saw it last night, missing the free throws. And in the end of the game with Boston... But you look at this Milwaukee team and you say, all right, they went out there this offseason. They gave up a ton of draft picks. They gave up George Hill. They gave up Eric Bledsoe, but they got Drew Holiday, a guy who fits great, who is a high-level player, one of the 25 best players in the league. Showed Giannis your exceptional commitment to winning. You go in there in the draft at the 60th overall pick. You grab Sam Merrill, who's a guy who can shoot threes. DJ Augustine. The prototypical backup point guard, you sign him three years, $21 million, with the third year having a very small guarantee, great signing there. Pat Connaughton, they kind of fumbled that signing a little bit, but ended up giving him a three-year deal, $16 million, um, with the third year being a player option, kind of fumbled that a little bit. Bryn Forbes, two years at the minimum, second year is a player option, Bryn Forbes, come off the bench, shoot threes for you, great signing, especially at the minimum. Tory Craig for a year at the minimum. I really like Torrey Craig as a 3 and D type off the bench. Getting Bobby Portis in there for two years, 7.5 million player option year two. And Bobby Portis is a guy who, you know, depends game to game, but he could come off the bench and light it up and score in droves from three. So, again, the Bogdanovich signing trade was, you know, it's unfortunate that didn't work out. Devin Chenzo, you're going to need him to really step up into a big role this year. But overall, you look at this Bucks team, and of course it really just comes down to can they truly do it in the playoffs? You know, is there another move they can make? I don't know. But you have a four and a half million dollar deal there in DJ Wilson. You obviously have DiVincenzo's money. So, you know, if the if DiVincenzo's value is enough to get you someone, we shall see because the draft pick supply is obviously depleted. But it really depends again, can they do it? in crunch time in the playoffs. We've seen them do it in the regular season repeatedly. They've now added Drew Holiday. That should help. But you look at this team and you look at their... But well, Let's look at it this way. Let's look at their closing lineup in the playoffs. Brooke Lopez, Giannis, Chris Middleton, Dante DiVincenzo, Drew Holiday. With DJ Augustine, Bryn Forbes, uh, Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, Torrey Craig off the bench. Is that team going to be able to beat, say, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving with a 12 deep team four times out of seven? I don't know. We've seen that this Bucks team, as great as they are in the regular season, they just can't do it when they have these tough matchups deep in the playoffs. And obviously you've got Giannis sign in the Supermax. That's the win of all wins. But I just I, I still wonder I know Coach Bud is great. And Giannis is obviously one of the three best players in the league. Really, probably the second best or best player in the league. I think second best player in the league. But I just still wonder a little bit in the playoffs if they can truly get it done with that group. And I, as I predicted earlier, saying the Lakers would beat the Nets in the finals, I tend to think that the Nets are a better team than them in a four out of seven playoff series in the conference finals. I really do. So... I look forward to seeing if the Bucs can reverse this trend in the playoffs. I don't think they do. I think they need one more piece. And unfortunately, the ability to get said piece, it's not really clear. So with that, that is my Eastern Conference uh, offseason recap, season preview from Seeds 15 to 1. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to check back on Apple Podcasts and Podcasts.com for more episodes of After the Final Whistle. Follow me on Twitter, at BradClear underscore, clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. And as always, to you, the listener, goodbye and good night.